resilience event series, uh, where the, the sort of the purpose or the thought behind the series is really to bring together um, experts from different areas of research to sort of put different perspectives on a topic um, to see if we can identify common questions, common issues of concern, and to integrate knowledge from different areas of expertise. Um, and today's topic is neuroscience responsibility and the law. And the thought behind putting together this panel was really that given that the prospects for our understanding of the brain and the development of psychopathologies are constantly increasing, we wanted to look at the question of what that means for the way we think about criminality, responsibility, uh, morality, philosophically speaking, but also um, legally speaking. What sort of impact might those developments have on the law? So the notions of criminality and responsibility, if you think about it, arguably depend on a certain view of ourselves, namely as, as rational agents who can respond to reasons. Um, and you, you might ask the question whether neurosciences threaten this view. So some authors have argued that we might have to abandon concepts like criminality, responsibility, blame, punishment, um, and some have argued that while this might not necessarily have an effect on the uh, legal system per se, so we, so we might still, for whatever reasons, want to lock people away, for example, it might have an effect on how we justify this and how we think of ourselves as well in the context um, of this system. Uh, other authors have argued that the neurosciences are rather unlikely to challenge fundamental notions of responsibility, but that they might contribute to better understanding or um, a change of the range of mitigating circumstances, for example, that we take into account, the kind of excuses that we accept in certain cases, um, or that they could provide useful evidence in court to help decide certain cases, um, which of course raises then the question what cases might those be and what kind of evidence are we talking about here? Is it neuroimaging? Uh, we can think of lie detectors, we can think of genetic profiles, maybe all kinds of potential uh, kinds of evidence come into question here. Um, and finally, the neurosciences sort of going away a little bit from this sort of maybe rather threatening view, there might also of course be a lot of positive effects, so neuroscience might contribute to the development of better methods of prevention of crime or of rehabilitation of offenders and <coughs> might not just you know, we shouldn't just maybe look, look at the negative effects here. Uh, in any case, today to discuss these and, and other questions with me here, I have three very distinguished speakers uh, whom I'm very pleased to introduce. So we have uh, Sir Michael Rutter, who is a professor of developmental psych psychopathology at the Institute of Psychiatry at King's College. Um, and as you might know, his research has included the study of antisocial behavior, studies of uh, school and family influences on children's behavior, and uh, he has a special interest in the interplay uh, of genetic and psychosocial risk factors. So I should maybe add that when we talk about the neurosciences here, we have a rather broad picture of what that might mean, including psychology, including genetics, including um, other things. Um, he has received numerous international honors and published some 40 books and 400, over 400 scientific papers, uh, which is quite astonishing and unbelievable, I think. Um, and anyway, we're very pleased to have him here. Uh, then to my right, there's Professor Roger uh, Brownsford. I just learned that's the right pronunciation, who is actually an LSE graduate uh, and is a professor of law at King's College in London. 
And he writes about contracts, common law, legal theory, bioethics, and the regulation of technology. And his work is well known around the world. And he was also together with uh, Michael Ratcher, a member of the Royal uh, Society Working Group on Neuroscience and the Law, who just published a report in December 2011. And I think you might have received a copy of that report as you came in today. So have a look at that. Although what the speakers are going to talk about is not directly representative of that report, but that's just so further information for you, as it were. And then to uh, my left is Professor Neil Levy, Deputy Director of the Oxford Centre for Neuroethics and Head of Neuroethics at the Florey Neuroscience Institute at the University of Melbourne. He has a PhD in Continental and Analytic Philosophy, uh, and his work ranges across the spectrum of neuroethics, but he has special interests in the science of moral decision-making, topics of free will and moral responsibility, and is the author of several books in many articles on conceptual issues in, f and in free will and moral responsibility, as well as on psychological mechanisms involved in self-control and addiction, and um, has written on psychopathologies as well. Um, my name is Christina Musold. I'm a fellow here at the philosophy department at LSE and deputy director of the forum. And with that, I think I'll hand over to the speakers. I think we'll begin with um, Mike just giving a, giving a sort of the state of the art very briefly of the neurosciences, and then um, we'll look at some philosophical issues and then look at the legal concerns, and then we'll have a, have a bit of a discussion on the panel and then have plenty of time also for discussion uh, with you and questions from you. Right, well, thank you. Um, what I'll be doing is to say briefly a few examples of the way in which neuroscience might be important in relation to the law, and then I'll spend a little bit more time uh, in terms of some of the limitations in making use of the neuroscience now. So that, for example, the issue of competence comes up most strikingly in terms of the age of criminal responsibility, where there is the most astonishing divergence of ages around the world. How can neuroscience help? Well, it can help by uh, showing that brain development uh, continues right into at least early adult life uh, and that the uh, brain development is accompanied by changes in mental functioning uh, that are relevant. So that, for example, the age at which the prefrontal cortex uh, develops is later than the age in uh, other older areas of the brain. <coughs> Prefrontal cortex is the area where decision making and risk taking uh, are uh, primarily dealt with. The second area I give as an example is truthfulness. Um, uh, we heard about lie detectors. Uh, those were the first on the scene, if you like. Um, imaging now uh, is a more a sophisticated uh, way of doing much the same kind of thing. Uh, but truthfulness also comes in with the question of uh, reports of pain, which comes up in relation to compensation uh, for injuries, and where the neuroscience tells us that there isn't a one-to-one -one relationship between the amount of tissue damage and the pain as experienced. The pain as experienced is a more complicated matter that involves uh, brain functioning. 
And the third example is the assessment of brain injury. So that the most obvious example here is the so-called battered child uh, when the findings uh, have been the subject of a good deal of controversy as to which ones really can uh, indicate that there has been a battering of the child and what might have arisen in other ways. So there is, I think, an abundance of evidence that indicates the potential role of neuroscience in relation to these and many other issues. But the question is, how far can it be used now? And there are just five issues that I want to highlight. The first is the difference between group differences and individual application. It is a universal finding that uh, much neuroscience is quite good at showing group differences on whatever it is you're wanting to be concerned with, but there is within group variation that is marked. In other words, the differences within any single group are often as great or greater than between groups. Why does that matter? Well, it matters hugely because it means that if you're applying it to individuals, and in the law, one is always applying it to individuals, uh, there will be quite a high rate of false positives and false negatives. The second is the samples used in the research. Uh, so that telling lies, uh, there's a lot of research on this, um, and on witness evidence. And the problem is that the evidence from the neuroscience studies is often not at all like what you actually have to deal with in the courts. So showing that it works in this sort of way among undergraduates, which is a favorite sample uh, for study, uh, does not tell you what it does uh, with uh, experienced lawbreakers. The third is that human actions to influence findings are important. Uh, there is good evidence that you can train yourself or you can be trained to falsify um, things like lie detectors. Uh, so the idea that you can train yourself to alter physiological responses is at first sight surprising, but there's an abundance of evidence that shows that you can. So again, that is problematic. You can't take this as simply, this is what an objective finding shows, therefore. And then the fourth is uh, individual variations, so that brain maturity is one thing, and the uh, work of people like Jay Geed is very strong on this, but competence actually varies a good deal by experience. Uh, the most striking uh, example of that is the studies that have been done of children's ability to give assent or otherwise to medical treatments. Uh, those who've had a lot of medical treatments are much better at judging this than those who haven't. And the fifth is the importance of social context. So the understanding of the issues involved in medical treatment is the best example uh, here, uh, where we know that 
the context in, within which the decisions have to be made influence one's ability uh, to take the decisions in a um, responsible way. So I think it's clear that the potential of neuroscience is great uh, and in the future it may be useful uh, in an immediate sense. But I don't think we're there yet um, and we need to be careful that the role of neuroscience for some time to come is likely to provide an additional bit of evidence. It's not likely to replace behavioral approaches uh, as they tend to be used uh, now. So very important potentially but a lot of queries about applying it in the courts today. Um, okay, I think, thank you very much, first of all. Um, I think Neil is the next speaker, but I just <coughs> wanted to jump in with one question, uh, just picking up on something you said, because you said um, the potential is great, but we're not there yet. Yes. At the same time, you pointed to the huge inter-individual inter -individual differences, <coughs> in particular uh, with, with brain development, and we know yes. that already, right, that yes. um, brain development continues way. Uh, into the into the twenties and into adulthood, and yet we have certain legal age for certain things. So, wouldn't you say that there is at least some reason already to perhaps modify some of those? Well, yes. Um, I mean, we have a criminal responsibility age of ten, which right. is ludicrously low Seems by world good. standards. Um, that's pretty certainly much too low, but. Then if you say, well, okay, let's raise it to 12, 14, 16, whatever age you like to put it at, what I would say is, actually, that doesn't solve the problem because at any age you give me, there will be big individual variation. And you have to have a way of taking that into account. And that's sort of difficult to do in the way that the law works. Right, so maybe we need to change it even more fundamentally in the sense yes. that we move away from general yes. laws and just judge cases on a very individual basis. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So we'll see that might be <laughs> difficult from a practical stand standpoint, but um, uh, before we get to that, I guess, or do you want to respond no, no, directly no, no. to that? <laughs> <laughs> uh, then I think uh, I'll hand the word to Neil. Thank you. Yes. Um, I agreed with you know, the, the spirit of everything Mike just said, both about the uh, relevance of neuroscience and also about the uh, need for caution in applying it right now. What I want to say though is about how neuroscience isn't relevant and I think this is important to uh, address this if only to set it aside because a number of prominent neuroscientists, some very prominent ones including uh, Nobel Prize winners have said that neuroscience shows that moral responsibility doesn't exist. So very briefly I want to tell you why they think this, or at least give you some of the reasons for thinking it, and why philosophers have tended to think that they are just flat out wrong. So um, the first reason, the one that, uh, it was Francis Crick who said that, that uh, the, the Nobel Prize winner who, who said it. The, the reason he gives, the central reason he gives is the brain is deterministic. Now, determinism is a thesis about causation. Uh, to, say, to say that causation is deterministic is to say that the way things are caused uh, 
it can only be caused in one way. Whatever event occurs has to happen given the prior state of affairs and given the laws of nature. And that would be important, Crick thinks, because uh, he, he says, and it's almost certainly true, that uh, the mind depends on the brain. So if brain events are deterministic, then mental events are deterministic, and therefore all our decisions, or everything we do intentionally, is determined. So Crick says there can't be moral responsibility because we never have a choice about what we do. Now this really annoys philosophers. Uh, first of all, I just want to mention that uh, we don't know the brain's deterministic. Uh, we don't know what the fundamental laws of physics are. Most physicists think they're indeterministic. We have no idea whether that indeterminism affects a large, uh, in physical terms, basic physical terms, a massive wet system like the brain. So we just don't know if the brain's deterministic. But the reason that it annoys philosophers is for literally 2,000 years, philosophers have been talking about uh, is moral responsibility compatible with determinism? Uh, Crick's simply ignorant of this debate. Uh, I mean, you, you know, he's a brilliant person. Uh, you can't know everything. He was. He's dead now. Um, so that's fine, but don't pontificate outside your area. Um, most philosophers think that it's a confusion. It, co it confuses coercion or compulsion with causation. Now, another philosopher, uh, sorry, neuroscientist, a prominent neuroscientist, Michael Gazzaniga, has said, yes, he knows philosophers say that, but no one could seriously believe it. You'd have to be a philosopher to have a theory that strange. <laughs> well, philosophers believe in data, unlike neuroscientists, and we've gone out and looked, we've tested to see what ordinary people uh, think, and it turns out it's actually hard to tell, but there's at least some evidence that ordinary people also think that moral responsibility and causal determinism are compatible. It's, it's a very uh, contentious area of experimental philosophy, but uh, that's the way it's looking. So, that's one re reason why I don't think people like Crick and Gazzaniga are right. There's a second, more direct argument from neuroscience for the, uh, the absence of moral responsibility. This is a really a neuroscience, neuroscience is really relevant to this one. It's based on neuroscience. And this one has uh, caused a huge stir. Uh, it's based on a very famous experiment by a neuroscientist called Benjamin Libet. Uh, back in the dark ages of neuroscience, before they had fMRI, but he, he used EEG, which is the appropriate technology still for this kind of experiment. What he did is he asked his subjects just to move a hand whenever they felt like it, and also to report the timing of their intention or urge to move their hand. Now that he did that, he got data on their intention or urge in quite a clever way. He set up a special clock, uh, like a clock, a dot traveled around the outside, around the circumference of the special clock, but very, very fast, two and a half seconds for a complete rotation. And he, he found that people were actually uh, quite good at identifying the location of the dot on that clock. Uh, to within 50 milliseconds, so he tested it by uh, um, 
giving them a signal, a light flash or a sound, which he could precisely time, and then seeing how accurate they, they were at timing it themselves by saying the dot was at you know, 3 o'clock or 6 o'clock or 9 o'clock, and he found they were very accurate. So he could get people to give him a pretty accurate report of their intention to move. The third thing he did is he timed a brain event called a readiness potential. And the readiness potential is a brain event that we know, we've known since the 60s, precedes voluntary movement. It's a little ramping up of electrical activity in uh, motor areas, which precedes voluntary movement. And here's what Libet found. By somewhere between 150 milliseconds to 400 milliseconds, the readiness potential begins to ramp up prior to people being aware of their intention to move first readiness potential, then people have an intention to move, then they move. Libet said, uh, well, actually Libet didn't say this, but he had some flaky views I don't want to go into. Uh, most of Libet's followers have said, no moral responsibility. The brain begins to act, then consciousness gets in on the act and says, oh, I'm moving. But it's not really. It's, it's epiphenomenal. It's it's simply a bit of steam coming out of the, uh, the chimney of, of the train. It's not what's doing the driving. It's all unconscious. Therefore, no moral responsibility. Uh, as I say, this has caused a huge stir. Uh, and in, oddly enough, in Germany, this has become a, a topic of, uh, of great public debate. Uh, with a number of newspaper articles on whether we can have moral responsibility given Libet's results. Well, I don't think that they are even a prima facie challenge to moral responsibility. I just don't see why we would care whether we are conscious of the precise moment of our intention to move. Here's what we want. We want it to be true that our deliberation, our conscious deliberation, affects what we end up doing. And nothing Libet showed, and nothing that other people who built on his works, uh, some very good experimentalists uh, like Patrick Haggard and Daniel Wagner and others, building on their work, none of their work gives us any reason to think that when we consciously deliberate about what to do, that doesn't uh, play the, a causal role in producing what we actually end up doing, even if we're not aware of when uh, we actually form the intention. In fact, I don't think it's at all surprising our intentions are formed unconsciously. The brain uh, is uh, a relatively slow system. And it's not that surprising that first you get the brain activation that is the formation of the intention, and then that gets shunted to consciousness. So I don't see anything threatening in neuroscience to the existence of moral responsibility. I could talk about other experiments which have been said to threaten uh, moral responsibility, uh, but I, I think that they can also be set aside. Like Mike, I believe we can learn a great deal. We are learning a great deal uh, from neuroscience and the allied sciences of the mind about when we're responsible. And I think some of that, those findings are surprising, uh, but it's going to be um, it's not going to be broad, it's not going to say that no one's ever uh, morally responsible, nor will it be everyone's always morally responsible. Instead, it's going to contribute to the patchwork which we were already developing about the conditions under which people are and aren't morally responsible.
Thank you. Um, of course, I think one issue that, that sometimes come up, comes up in this debate is to what extent um, the law cares at all about these philosophical questions of, of free will, right? Like some, some people would maybe you would agree that, well, ultimately that's not what the law is concerned about. Um, other than others have, have come back and have argued, no, well, but it should because even if it doesn't rely explicitly on those assumptions, at least implicitly, we have these sort of four psychological notions of what it means to be free and responsible, and, and law is, is to some extent based on those four psychological notions. So um, just to kind of maybe get, get a sense of what do, you, what do you think about that? So do you think the law should care about this debate, whether or not these experiments tell us anything about well, should the law itself be concerned with that? Well, when we learn that uh, a, a particular kind of agent isn't morally responsible in a, single, uh, in a, a particular kind of situation, I think that gives us legally relevant information because it tells us things about whether it's necessary to deter them, for instance. Did they perform the action intentionally? Uh, and uh, in such a way that we think that they were acting on capacities which are going to be responsive to deterrence, like prison sentences. If they were acting as a result of uh, automatisms, for instance, then they're not going to be uh, able to be affected by deterrence. And then we want to know further things like, is the automatism likely to recur, in which case they might be dangerous and there may be reasons to incapacitate them, despite their lack of moral responsibility. But if it's not something that's generated by capacities that would respond to deterrence and it's not likely to recur, then there's no reason for the law to be concerned with them any further. Right, but this sort of seems to apply to um, individual cases where we might have reason to think that someone wasn't or was or wasn't in control of their behaviour. Right? I take the, the debate about determinism and, and liberty to be a bit broader than that, right, namely right. saying that, well, none of us is ever responsible? Well, I, I take it that the law has several purposes in uh, punishing or, or putting people in, in, in through the criminal justice system. So there's incapacitation, there's rehabilitation, there's deterrence, but there's also retribution. Uh, and the retributive motive would no longer be applicable if people are not morally responsible. And that uh, might make a big difference to how we treat them because we would be obliged to, insofar as it's compatible with our other goals, to um, treat them as nicely as possible. Right. Yeah. yeah, it might also make a difference for how we think about it, right? We might, we might sort of put someone away, but we wouldn't then say, well, it's because he deserves it, he or she deserves it, so he or she is blameworthy. We, we sort of wouldn't use that vocabulary, presumably. Right. Okay, well, I guess we should um, turn over to the lawyer and see um, the point of view from yeah. Okay, well, thanks very much. Um, I'm going to start by saying a few words about two senses in which responsibility figures in the law, just to, to clarify the relevant sense as I see it. I'll then talk about three ways in which lawyers or the legal community might respond to neuroscience around the questions that have been flagged up already, actually. One, to do with uh, the relevance of neuroscience to law. Secondly, to do with the law's aspiration to be a rational enterprise about rationality. And thirdly, uh, the crucial question, I think, which is about the fairness of treating people in a particular way when we know what we know about the brain and the mind via neuroscience. 
And I'll end with a little prognosis, which is slightly scary. Um, now, the first thing is that there is, I think, an important distinction between the way we hold people responsible in law within the criminal justice system and the way we hold them responsible, for example, as a matter of contract or tort or civil liability. In the former case, we are being very judgmental. We're saying, look, you know, you're bad people. You've done something seriously wrong. You merit being punished. In the other case, uh, it's more a question of where the buck stops, who has to pick up the bill. Uh, in the, for example, the story that's running about the PIP breast implants, I think we see both dimensions of responsibility playing here very clearly. In the south of France, the owner of the now bankrupt uh, firm, as I understand being arrested, um, is facing criminal charges. I think everybody looks at this guy as the villain of the piece. I mean, if he gets convicted of a criminal offence, we will say, yeah, yeah, this is really bad man, uh, done bad things here, using industrial-grade silicone in these implants. Yeah, that's bad. That's not mince words, it's bad. And that's holding someone criminally responsible. It's very judgmental. Uh, the immediate question back home here, though, is who's going to pick up the bill for the replacement work on, 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 of the implants? Is it going to be the clinics that did much of the work? Is it going to be the NHS? Is, is it going to be the taxpayer you know, standing behind the Medicines Healthcare Regulatory Agency? Who's going to pick up the bill? I mean, certainly if I pick up the bill, I'm indirectly held responsible. I don't think that anybody's going to hold me blameworthy. Okay, so for much of the time, when we say you are responsible away from the criminal law, we're not talking about blaming people. There's no attribution of wrongdoing in that sense. It's just you're the person who has the responsibility here, particularly as a kind of insurer or compensator. And I take it that the focus of the debate about neuroscience of the law is in relation to criminal responsibility, where we're stigmatising people, where we're taking a punitive attitude, where we're being negatively judgmental about people and their conduct. That's, that's the crucial thing. Does any of that have to give ground in the light of what we know from neuroscience? Um, well, uh, of course, at this stage, we could say, look, it's still too immature to be making any kind of calls on this whatsoever. But let, I mean, let, let's, let's assume, as Mike says, that, uh, that neuroscience is going to progress and that these questions uh, are ultimately going to be questions we do have to address. Now, the first possibility is that lawyers will say it's irrelevant. Yeah, I mean, that's not to say neuroscience isn't wonderful. Uh, if it can find ways of producing better therapies for depression, for Parkinson's disease and whatnot, that's great. But it's got nothing to do with the practice of law. Um, the criminal justice system, criminal law practice, has been doing fine for centuries in its own way. You know, we didn't have neuroscience before. We don't need it now. It's perfectly okay. We can carry on without it. Uh, moreover, why should we be targeting the criminal law? There are many rule-bound enterprises where we, you know, where we take a negative view, a stigmatising view about people who break the rules. You know, in football, in rugby, we show the red card to people. We think they're bad people when they commit fouls. Uh, are we seriously suggesting that in the light of neuroscience, we ought to be rethinking these kind of ancient practices as well? Well, so, so there is one possibility, which is to say it's just irrelevant. We don't care what neuroscience says. We're just going to carry on you know, uh, drinking beer and having a good time and doing things in the courts that we've been doing for a long time. That's one possibility. I don't think, however, that is going to be the way it will play. Secondly, the possibility is that the relevance of neuroscience will be conceded. The, uh, the criminal law, I think, is actually very open to improvements that are brought forward by science the way, for example, we see DNA evidence being used in courts in ways that are thought to be quite sophisticated and helpful in fact-finding. We don't have trials by ordeal anymore. There's an attempt 
progressively to make the law a more rational enterprise. And neuroscience promises, I think, to be something that can assist in making law a more rational enterprise. The most damaging thing that neuroscience could come up with would be to show that the entire enterprise is completely irrational. Uh, Neil, I think, floated this possibility and rejected it straight away. This is the idea that you and I do not at all receive the signals that the criminal law, the criminal code, puts out. You know, there are these laws, these rules, but they don't actually play at all. They have no causal effect. Uh, we perhaps don't even hear them, but they're not signals that we act on in any sense at all. You might as well direct a bottle of water not to do this, that, and the other, or a table and a chair. It's pointless. I mean, if neuroscience could show that the whole criminal justice enterprise is pointless in that sense, no point prescribing to humans. I mean, once upon a time, we prescribed to dogs, and then we realized that that wasn't perhaps a particularly rational thing to do. We don't do that anymore. If neuroscience could say, look, this is something you should give up with humans as well, well, that would be, as I say, quite a staggering uh, outcome from neuroscience. I don't believe that's going to happen for one minute, but if it were to show that, that uh, criminal prohibitions are pointless in that sense, and it's irrational for us to issue the prescriptions uh, in the first place, uh, then we certainly would need to rethink what we're doing. But I don't think that's, that's the scale of it. More likely, I think, uh, we're going to take bits and pieces from neuroscience, and Mike gave the example of the age of criminal responsibility. Now, I think that's one area where neuroscience could well plug into other pressures that are going on for a rethink of the 10-year-old rule that we have in, in England at the moment. I mean, it wasn't always that way. Once upon a time, we had quite a nuanced view about the age of criminal responsibility going up to 14. And in that area between 10 and 14, we had a doctrine called Dole Inca Pax, uh, where there was a kind of presumption that these young children did not actually have well, the maturity to, to, to be treated as criminally responsible. But there were a, a couple of very well-publicised cases where it seemed that some rather knowing young guys uh, were, you know, the evidence that, that, that showed that that particular hypothesis was not correct. And we then came, came round uh, to, to this, this rule we now have, a bright line rule at 10, which is way out of line, as we've heard with many of our, our comparators, not, not least north of the border in Scotland. Um, so I think it's possible that, that, um, that there could be pressure derived from neuroscience to make the law more rational in the way it treats young people. Uh, but um, I don't, as I say, see uh, neuroscience for some long time offering a root and branch challenge to the criminal justice system on the grounds that this is a completely pointless enterprise. So if we say... Look, neuroscience can be received within the law and it might produce some modification to practice and to the principles where we see that what we're doing is irrational. This leaves the third ground for engagement between lawyers and neuroscientists, which I think is where it's really most intense. And this is around whether the practice is fair. Um, the starting point is that whenever someone commits an offence, there is always a story. There's always a story to be told. Sometimes we feel some sympathy with the defendant and we will excuse or mitigate, or, or even, you know, yeah, we'll excuse or mitigate in the light of, of the story that's being told. Neuroscience is one such story. Sometimes we quite like the story that neuroscientists tell us and we think, oh yeah, this is excusing or mitigating. Other times we don't. For example, in one of the cases in the mid-90s, much 
discussed case involving a chap called Stephen Mobley. Most of these examples are American, I have to say. But Mobley walked into, I think, a pizza, pizza place and gunned down the manager, the proprietor of that pizza place, um, even though the guy was willing to hand over the cash that Mobley was after. Uh, and the lawyers argued that there was um, uh, an MA, uh, MO, MAOA deficiency that accounted for Mobley's de behaviour. Uh, the jury in that case did not like that story. They didn't think that that offered any kind of excuse or mitigation uh, and Mobley was uh, committed for the death penalty. By contrast, one of the cases that we have in, I think, in a box in the Brainwaves report is the case of a 40-year-old American chap who has a perfectly clean record and quite unexpectedly develops these paedophilic tendencies. Uh, and uh, they get worse and worse and worse. Um, and to cut a long story short, we find that he has a tumour exerting pressure um, uh, on his brain, uh, and that seems to account for his, for his uh, aberrant behaviour. Uh, the tumour's removed, and he's fine again. Uh, and then these tendencies build up once more, and once again we find there's a tumour growing there. I don't know how the story finishes, but the tumour was removed for a second time, and seems to, seems to be the end of his behaviour. Right? When you tell that story to most people, they kind of warm to this and think, well, this, this is not in a case that would be appropriate for, for a penal response. So the question is, what criteria of fairness do we operate with? Why do we decide that in one case it's fair to do this, in another case it's not? And we've already heard again that the criminal law sits on a number of justifying theories, of which the two classic um, candidates are Benthamite utilitarian deterrence theory, and Kantian, or modern Kantian, sort of retributivism. Now, for utilitarians, uh, they're not much bothered, I think, about fairness per se. Um, what matters for a utilitarian is whether the practice is producing the optimal consequences in terms of promoting human well-being or welfare or promoting preferences or whatever it might be, whichever version of utilitarianism it is that, uh, that you're working with. The question is, is, does this practice have the right kind of consequences? Now, if it were shown uh, that the brains of criminal defendants do not function in quite the way that we assume, uh, this would not necessarily be a reason for a utilitarian to U-turn of the criminal justice system or to modify the practice at all. If notwithstanding this, it still seems like the way we're doing it is the best way to do it relative to utilitarian objectives, then you would think we're perfectly justified in carrying on. And you would say, okay, I hear what you're saying, you're a scientist, but this doesn't actually mean we have to deviate from our existing practice or change things. On the other hand, if your starting point is a retributivist, kind of Kantian starting point, where uh, your underlying assumption is one that we are agents who have some control over our acts, that we freely choose to do the things we do. If we choose to do a bad thing, then we are deservedly punished. It's got nothing to do with good consequences. It's simply a matter of uh, putting the moral balance back uh, in place. Uh, then neuroscience could be quite worried uh, because it does now seem, uh, at least in some versions of neuroscience, to present a story uh, that directly challenges these underpinning presuppositions of the retributivist view. Uh, and the question, I mean, Neil again has already kind of answered this question, what would happen if you were to give way to the neuroscientists on this? If you're a retributivist and you say, okay, I'll concede this, uh, or even just for the sake of argument, let's concede it, what happens? We have to subtract from the criminal justice system and presumably from our general social practices, those elements of being judgmental, stigmatising, blaming, 
all that kind of thing. You know, the moral homily has to disappear from this. So what does this mean, we think, about the people who commit antisocial acts? Well, it means they now are to be viewed as risks. Uh, and the risk paradigm threatens to carry everything before it at the moment. And I think in the risk paradigm, you say whether it's people, whether it's products, whether it's places that are risky, we have to manage the risks. And that means that instead of criminal justice as we know it in the retributivist paradigm, we have a system of risk management, which will sometimes treat the appropriate risk management strategy as being a medical one, uh, where we have to do some tuning up or tuning down of the neurology, or it'll be some kind of confining or, in, uh, I don't know, confining architectural design solution that means this person can't do the antisocial things that they've previously been able to do. Excuse me, curfews and tracking devices and things like that being fitted. Excuse me. Uh, so the question of what the criminal justice system would look like minus moral responsibility, minus that kind of punitive response that we think is you know, the paradigm of the retributive view, a very, very interesting question. Uh, but it, that only becomes a question if neuroscience overwhelmingly convinces us that moral responsibility doesn't make sense or if we just give up on that idea. Uh, it's quite reassuring to hear at least Neil saying you know, he's not ready to give up on this idea just yet. Um, so how about the prognosis to finish up with? Uh, my prognosis is uh, that we won't regard neuroscience as irrelevant in the law, that we will regard it as relevant and pertinent, that we'll try and treat it in a partnership sort of way, using it where we think it can point us in more rational uh, directions in relation to the practice. Uh, I don't think it means there's going to be a fundamental change in the way we stigmatise and blame people in the criminal justice system just yet. However, I do think that neuroscience is part of a wider landscape of science and technology that's encouraging us to try to improve on the effectiveness of old-fashioned laws, which are notoriously ineffective in channeling people's behaviour. And that what we will find in the future uh, is a world where regulators are trying to use less law and instead design in um, answers to their regulatory problems so that the only options we actually have available in practice uh, are, are ones that are presented to us in the design of products, in the architecture of places, and possibly in our own biology, I don't know. But just like uh, these days, it's very difficult to ride on the underground system without buying a ticket because of the architecture that's in place there, or to proceed through an international airport without going through the security checks. If you want to get on that plane, this is the only way to do it. The practical thought you have is not, I ought or I ought not to be doing these things. This is the only thing I can do, given particular objective. So we will find ourselves channeled, I think, so that whatever the ultimate truth about free will, we can't do anything otherwise than what we actually do. Thank you, Wallace. Uh, I think a lot to think about there and a lot to, to pick up on. I mean, one thing that sort of comes to mind is if we do give up on this sort of view of the law punishing um, and we, we move instead towards some sort of risk management, um, you know, given that, and that's perhaps a, a question Mike would have to say something about, um, I don't know how reliable neuroscientific evidence could ever be in that respect in, for example, giving us a marker of... <laughs> Uh, you know, the potential risk a person poses or the violence. I mean, given that we have the strong interaction between genes, environment, personal history, it's not clear how reliable neuroscience could be in that respect, but assuming that it could give us a marker for that, uh, would we then even have to perhaps 
you know, lock people up before they even have committed a, a crime, which would go very much against the idea that you know you can't punish someone for something they haven't done. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, I, sh I should have said that part of this rather dystopian prognosis I just gave you is that the whole burden of the criminal justice system and its resources will move ex ante rather than ex post. I don't think neuroscience and all the rest of the technologies are going to kick in in future after the crimes being committed. The emphasis is going to be on trying to prevent crimes. There will be a, an attempt to profile people to see whether they are dangerous and the risks then, as Mike again foreshadowed, are, are enormous because unless the neuroscience is tremendously reliable, you're going to be turning up all sorts of false negatives and false positives that, uh, well, <laughs> but I think that, that's right. I think this, this, again, is something that plays into a mentality that we're developing that prevention is better than cure. Hmm. That's a pretty risky prospect in some ways. What do you think, Mike, how realistic is that sort of scenario from the point of view of your Oh, I think it's very unlikely that neuroscience will be sufficiently valid to be able to do that. Um, it's, it's not in itself a silly notion that one would like to do it like this, but certainly we're light years away from being able to do that now. Uh, can I just comment on, I mean I agree with both Roger and Neil, uh, but um, you raised the issue of uh, moral responsibility and I think there are two things that need to be said. The first is that we know from neuroscience that the brain functions in a probabilistic way, not a deterministic way. So that there is a, as brain, the brain develops, there's a vast overproduction of brain cells which are then pruned uh, as a way of fine-tuning to get it right next time round. And that's the way the biology works outside the brain as well, I should say. So it is probabilistic. Does that mean that a reductionistic approach is not possible? No, it isn't, because there are all sorts of ways in which reductionism does work, but it is still the biology, and that's the difference from physics. We do not have universal laws that apply to all individuals in all contexts, nor do I think in the least bit likely ever we ever will have. But I think, let me introduce a philosopher too. Uh, Dan Dennett deals with this issue uh, in, I think, a very thoughtful sort of way, in which he argues that evolution uh, designs humans, if you like, to be able to think and to plan and to think ahead. And that means that uh, they, they are able to exert agency in this. Complete agency? No, of course not. Uh, but uh, I think the scenario... Um, that you raise and quite rightly I think dismissed should be dismissed. Crick was wrong. Okay. Neil, do you want to pick up on any yeah. of that? Let me introduce another term from Dennett. He has this lovely notion, I don't think it was him originally, I think it might have been Hofstadter, but he, he uses it of sphixishness. Uh, after a kind of wasp, the, the digger wasp, which is sphix something or other, it's a Latin term, uh, and it's got, um, <coughs> it's become famous for a little behavioral routine it's, it's got. It, when it returns to its nest, it's a nest building wasp with food, uh, it drops the food outside and then it goes in, into the, the, the nest 
presumably to check that it hasn't, it hasn't been, haven't been unwelcome guests in the meantime. And then it returns and gets the food and goes in. And uh, Svexishness gets its name from the fact that if while it's exploring its nest, the, literally the second or so it takes to explore the nest, you move the food just an inch or so away, it goes and gets it again and then drops it and goes and checks the nest again. And you can do this repeatedly. Um, some, some grad students got bored and actually did it 700 times or something. <laughs> uh, so sphexishness has become, it, it's, it was then its term for behavior that's not responsive to reasons. And what neuroscience does occasionally find is an unexpected island of sphexishness in human behavior. Uh, uh, somewhere where we, we we are generally responsive to reasons, but just occasionally uh, we do act on an automatism, either a global automatism like you see in absence seizures or uh, sleepwalking, or a local automat automatism where um, certain, under certain conditions uh, we may engage in motor behaviors when we're conscious that we're not conscious of performing or we're not conscious of how we're performing them. Let me just add one other thing, which is one thing I'd like to see neuro that neuroscience having an effect in, on the quarter right now. Neuroscience understood very broadly in cognitive sciences, and that is in downgrading the status of eyewitness testimony. Because I think there's an enormous amount of evidence that eyewitness testimony is uh, is regarded by juries, and perhaps they're directed, I don't know, uh, to regard it this way, as, as very reliable. And we know it isn't. So when uh, there was a study of, w we've now got this large body of cases of people who were convicted before DNA evidence w was available, but we have um, evidence which we can now test and we can now, in, in many cases, uh, prove that they were not uh, guilty of the crime. And there was a study of 143 cases of people convicted of serious crimes in the United States and then uh, with conviction overturned on DNA evidence. In each case, not the conviction was found to be unsound, but they were found to be without a doubt uh, not guilty. And in over 100 of those cases, they were convicted at least in part in eyewitness testimony. And we know from independent evidence that uh, eyewitness testimony is very easily corrupted. People are very good at saying, I, at being right in saying, I've seen this person before. They're very bad in saying, I saw them at a particular time or place. So having seen Roger's face, if I have to pick him out of a lineup, I might think, yeah, that's, that's the guy who mugged me. But really, I might be remembering Roger's face from, from uh, uh, the LSE and not from being mugged at all. <laughs> so I'd like to see uh, that particular uh, change made to the courts today. Right, so that brings up uh, you know, the, the issue of false memories, and I think it relates back to a point that Mike made about lie detectors earlier as well, because of course if you're, com if you're convinced that what, that's what you saw, even though you didn't see it really, then you know, there's not much point even introducing a lie detector there because you're actually not lying, at least not intentionally. I mean, you've convinced yourself, or, or for, some, for some reason you have this sort of false belief or this false memory. Um, do you think there's any chance that that, will, that sort of change will come about relatively soon? Well, um, I mean, I was saying that I thought the law might be receptive to um, developments in neuroscience that would enable it to be more rational in its fact-finding uh, procedures. <coughs> so 
Uh, I mean, the lesson that, 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 that Neil has suggested the law should take from neuroscience would clearly be valuable. I have been. I mean, I, there, there are cases where I think law has learned uh, uh, in areas of this kind. But um, the proposal that uh, uh, neuroscientific lie detectors might be, uh, might, might be used to produce evidence that would survive the very demanding threshold that uh, we would have for evidence in a criminal trial, I, I think that, that, that doesn't look too promising. Um, but um, uh, I don't think that means we can all, I mean, I don't know if that's necessarily good or bad. Um, if neuroscience could do the business here, then clearly, you know, then we should welcome it. But a more likely scenario, I suspect, is as with the polygraph in America, where, uh, by and large, the evidence isn't admitted in court, but polygraphs can be used elsewhere in the criminal justice system without proper kind of regulation, and people are being used, uh, people are being persuaded to make damaging admissions uh, pre-trial, uh, during the investigation stage, uh, I mean, if, if neuroscience ha uh, acquired that kind of reputation, that would that would that would be something for us to worry about. Hmm. Um, I'd like to pick up on one other issue that came up uh, in your presentation, which was the the issue of fairness and yeah. the extent to which sometimes we do accept mitigating circumstances yeah. as mitigating, and other times we don't. Mm -hmm. um, the question is, what determines whether we accept something as mitigating or not, and uh, sort of a broader related issue to that would be perhaps um, does the fact that we do admit certain things as mitigating and others not point towards certain intuitions that we have about what it means to be responsible or what it means to be an agent that do ultimately, as some have argued, conflict with the sort of compatibilist view? Um, or do you all agree that that's compatibilism and incompatibilism is just not an issue in, in that respect? Well. I mean, I, I think the root idea of fairness here is that um, we, we want to be confident that this person is in some sense in control of their actions and wherever there is very tangible evidence uh, that they might not be in control, I think we, we're persuadable. I think the case of the, you know, the teacher with the paedophilic tendencies mm. exemplifies this. Um, if that case doesn't persuade you, I don't think too many would. And I think the reason it persuades us is because we say, okay, the explanation for this conduct, even in the early stages, is the development of this tumour. Uh, this is out of character. Uh, this guy really wasn't in control at the time. But you might say, well, hang on a minute, that's a bit too quick, a bit too glib. But, but anyway, I think that's the str strong kind of case, whereas the Mobley case and many others where neuroscientific evidence is, is much less tangible uh, much more complex, much more contestable, and doesn't really clinchingly show that this person was not in control, uh, I, then I think that those are the cases where we're reluctant to, to, to mitigate, because we're just suspicious that, that, that the defence lawyers will opportunistically add, add neuroscience to their pleadings in the hope that it will, you know, that it will do some work for them. Um, clearly, clearly, the criminal justice system uh, has an element of you know, conservative element to it. It doesn't want to be duped. But to sort of play devil's advocate here, I mean, I'm actually not an incompatibilist, just to make it clear, but just sort of take that role in for a minute. When you speak of control, wouldn't, you know, some of the neuroscientists that Neil talked about at the beginning, wouldn't they say, well, look, but I mean, what really is the difference between that case with the guy with the tumour and just our everyday case? I mean, if we accept determinism and if everything, basically the view sort of being that, given the particular state of the universe, everything else will necessarily follow from that. Isn't it just an illusion that we are ever in control? And 
Well, well the, the criminal justice system is predicated on there being normal cases and exceptional cases. And you're now trying to, to, to advance a sort of an, a comprehensive, the, there, are, there are no normal, well, the, the normal case is actually the case where we're not in control. And I, I, I just don't think people are ready for that. Uh, yeah, I, I, the, the, in, the instincts we have about what's fair here are probably fairly primitive, but that, that, that's what we, we work in our intuitions. Right. They might not be ready for that now, but some authors have argued that as neuroscience has advanced, maybe those intuitions will change. What's, what do you think is the right Can I comment on the difference between the Mobley case and the paedophilic? The paedophilic one is utterly different in my view because it carries with it a prediction that if you remove the tumour, the paedophilia will stop and moreover if the tumour comes back, it's likely to return. Uh, and if you operate again, it will take it away. That's the way science works. And that's utterly different from saying this is a person who has a risk tendency of some kind that may or may not have played a role, but we can't actually determine how much of a role it played. And the courts, I think, are rightly reluctant to go down that route. Now, the paedophilic uh, case is a rare rarity, but I think it does indicate that the law can use common sense uh, as well as us. And this is an example where it clearly was right. OK, I think I'd like to um, open up the discussion now to the audience. I'm sure there'll be lots of questions. So we'll and there are, will, will be microphones coming around. So if you could just wait until you have a microphone in hand. So we'll start with that question over there. I think there's two microphones, right? Hello, um, my name is Marie Brasher. I'm a PhD student in criminal law, so I come very much from the legal perspective here. Um, there's a couple of things. I have a question more specifically, but a couple of thoughts about how the law accommodates neuroscience. And I think it, the criminal justice system, it literally just popped into my mind as you were discussing it. I think it does so either through procedure or sometimes the rules already, even if they might not know it. The Strauss-Kahn case last year of the sexual abuse, the um, alleged victim eventually was decided that she could not testify because she had learnt a rape testimony before she claimed asylum. And they were held that she could not be a reliable, um, a reliable witness. The jury would not believe her because she had gone through listening to tapes of people giving rape testimony because she thought that she might get a better asylum claim. So in a way, that's what we talked about, you know, uh, falsifying a, a lie detector test. And that's why it couldn't go through. Um, similarly, in self-defense, you'll be treated as in if you have a subjective mistake about the situation, that will be taken into account, but your reaction according to that mistaken belief will be dealt with in moral responsibility. Would a normal person have reacted the same way? So it's already some, I think maybe the criminal justice system is showing common sense more than we give it credit for. Um, just a quick question. We talked about competence and the age of responsibility. Is there any specific way neuroscience can give us some information about age of consent in sexual offences, which is at the moment at 12 years old or 13 years old or even 16, and it's deemed that anyone under that age cannot give consent at all, even though they can be criminally responsible. Is there any distinction that neuroscience can make in that context? 
it can't give an answer, I think, um, but it would say that this is a time when brain development is continuing and is going to go on for quite a few years after it, and moreover, uh, that the main thing that is going to change during the adolescent period is the ability to think ahead uh, and to plan and to take responsibility. So that um, it would say, I think, that uh, it's, you can't put an exact age on things, but, but certainly that's not an age in which you can uh, assume that people can take considered decisions. <laughs> um, the, you were the, uh, what is it, the pilot's photo day? Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thanks. Uh, yeah. Peter Sazu, uh, LSE. Um, um, a very quick comment and a question. Um, the comment is, uh, Roger spoke about the difference between the uh, utilitarian versus the sort of Kantian perspective. It's worth just pointing out that um, our moral sensibilities themselves probably evolved on the basis of um, a capacity to have uh, moral feelings to maximise fitness. So our morality I itself probably ultimately derives from an evolutionary process which we think of as utilitarian anyway. But um, my, my, pra my question actually is something much more practical, um, which is about how things work at the moment. I believe there's something called the sentencing panel that determines typical sentences for different uh, offences. Um, I think it used to be uh, headed by someone called uh, Leveson. I believe he's doing something else at the moment. I'm not sure who's currently heading it, but can you tell us a bit more about how the current process works in sentencing and whether the utilitarian or the Kantian perspective or a mixture of the both uh, of the two dominates? Uh, I, have to, I have to confess that... Um, uh, <laughs> yes, I have to confess that I'm not a specialist criminal lawyer. In fact, the last time I seriously studied criminal law was when I was an undergraduate student here in the 1960s. So, uh, I, I mean, I, I know that the sentencing panel uh, will, of course, offer up a, a, a range. A range. I mean, you can find a range with, with recommendations uh, in the light of various considerations that have to be taken into account in a particular case. But whether, whether you would say that, um, uh, that, the, that the working theory there is more utilitarian than retributive, I, I really don't know. And I mean, my impression, I mean, there might be other people in the audience who perhaps can give us a much better answer to this one, but uh, I mean, my impression is that the, 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 criminal, you know, the criminal law is a real mishmash of, of utilitarian and retributivist strands. And you know, uh, no, no one can start staying over and says, look, we're going to purify this. Um, can we go here in the second row, third row? Thank you. I want to refer to what uh, Professor Brown's word has, has said, and I was thinking back, uh, I think it was Mr. Justice Bryan, going back many hundreds of years, who said we couldn't understand what's in a person's mind. And I would also refer to the discussion on mens rea and the McNaughton rules. And I was querying whether <coughs> there isn't a danger in your comment. Well, it may be in the future we can take bits from neuroscience. And my concern there is that neuroscience is an isn't an absolute truth, as Sir Michael made quite clear in his reservations as to where it's going to go. And therefore, you get into a situation where we have today where one group of experts will say, he is competent to stand trial. 
next day the next lot come in and say, no, he's not competent to stand, to stand trial. And it may well be, however much you, there is a feeling there should be an interchange between the law, which tends to be on occasion somewhat rigid and governed by precedent, as against a situation where we can't refer to absolute truths and say, well, there's an absolute truth there, therefore we've got to, in some way, concede part of our thinking on the legal side. Anybody wants to comment on that, or shall we just leave that? Yeah, I know it wasn't a direct question, no. I think that, um, uh, I mean, I, the, prob the scenario I was depicting um, was one, I suppose, that, that assumes that um, there is a regulatory elite that has a very clear idea about how it wants to organize a particular society, um, and that neuroscience can be put to benign uses as well as malign uses. And, but I, I see this as part of the, you know, the, the multiple uses of science and technology uh, as, as, as regulatory tools. And we, we're, we're moving into a period where people are just thinking more and more, I believe, about the, well, the potential of new technologies to operate as regulatory instruments. It's a new world. Okay, um, just behind you, there's, yeah, just there. Thanks, uh, I'm Bahadur Bahrami, neuroscientist from UCL. My question is for Sir Michael as well. Uh, as an empirical scientist, it's difficult for me to see which one of those five limitations that you gave for, for neuroscience is going to resolve in the future. I, as a result, I, I, I don't really think that you can, you can be that optimistic about neuroscience really being able to help. So I was wondering if you think any one of those five limitations is going to resolve, and which one? Thank you. <laughs> well, that's a good question. Um, um, why should one be optimistic? Well, I think because neuroscience is developing and it's difficult to know exactly how far it can go. Let me just take the issue of biomarkers and the problem at the moment of applying those to individuals. Uh, there certainly are neuroscientists scientists who would argue that the technical problems can be overcome. I'm not sure about that, uh, but it is possible uh, that at least the technical problems can be uh, much reduced and help. But I would still be sort of cautious about my optimism that it will be more useful in the future in uh, saying that I think it can contribute, I don't think it can replace uh, what we already have. Um, I've got a comment and then a question coming from that. My first comment, looking at more the law side, would be that I think we need to also assess how big of an impact uh, history and sort of how we've always done things related to law work and how able we really are to get rid of those traditions maybe and really look at sort of philosophy and neuroscience and what they can contribute even if it means you know completely changing it and my particular question would be linking uh, the eyewitness statements um, and the lie detector because on the one hand we are saying there are many 
lot of research done on eyewitnesses not being entirely reliable, and then they can also be obviously altered and cannot be really trusted in, in a sense. Um, but we still use them, and a lot. Uh, but then with lie detectors, because they cannot be trusted, and we're saying we can train to sort of avoid them, um, we've chosen not to rely on them that much. So my question is, do you think um, there, will ever be, that there will ever be time where we're saying, yes, neuroscience advances and maybe new philosophical ideas can come and completely change everything? Are we always going to be cautious about new things like lie detectors and going to be more sort of relying on traditional methods simply because we feel more comfortable with them, even if purely rationally with no, 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 no thought being given to his, historical sort of ways of doing things, would, would you know? Would 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 that would that have really ever really happened? So, would would neuroscience really have major role, even if it was possible to to use it properly? Well, it will have a role, a major role. Well, that depends. Uh, let, let's just come back to lie detectors for a moment. I think we've got to understand what neuroscience tells us about lie detection, whether you're using the old-fashioned physiological methods or whether you're using brain imaging, it is telling you what is going on in the mind of the person. It is not telling you whether they're telling the truth. Uh, let me give a, an example that illustrates that. Uh, Blair, as we know, said that he knew for sure that there, no, that there were weapons of mass destruction uh, in Iraq. Uh, we now know that was wrong. Did he lie? Well, let's give him the benefit of the doubt. Let's assume he honestly believed that uh, there were, but he turned out that he was wrong. And so what the brain findings will do is not tell you whether it's right or wrong, but will tell you whether he lied in a conscious way. And that is, is, is somewhat different. And I think the, the reservations apply more generally in thinking uh, that that's a common problem in relation to much of neuroscience. Yeah, um, just two points, if I may. First of all, I, I don't want to give you the impression that uh, although the law is conservative, it's not open to, to new science and technology. I, I gave the example of DNA evidence. I mean, I, I, th I think that provided the, 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 the science gets above the, the threshold, uh, and of course, the, the Law Commission has last year recommended some changes in that. Uh, but provided it gets over the threshold of reliability, um, then expert evidence, you know, from science will will will, will be admitted in court. Um, but the question of whether lie detectors could ever um, get over the threshold is, I mean, the conventional wisdom here is that it's just a matter of time before neuroscience gets gets its act together in a way in which we do have reliable, sufficiently reliable technologies. But there is also a view that uh, it can never get over the bar because the whole concept of a lie is something that is socially constructed. I mean, yeah, Mike was already indicating this, and uh, I, you know, the, what's the difference between a real lie and a white lie? You know, so, so uh, I, I mean, if that really is a problem, then neuroscientists have to construct their own version of a lie and develop a technology that will detect where people are in their sense lying, but whether that will ever be the relevant sense for the law and for society generally is something that, you know, is moot. But it seems to me that what you were suggesting, maybe what Neil, you were suggesting as well, is 
Well, okay, lie detectors might not be admitted because they don't pass the threshold that we have for reliable evidence, but given that neuroscience also shows, or psychology also shows that eyewitness reports actually are below that threshold, we should eliminate mm. those as well then, right? Mm. Is that, that was so the idea? I think people have a great deal of difficulty in accepting that uh, folk psychology is not <coughs> always accurate, so taking a third-person uh, perspective on themselves. So. Uh, there's a study I love that was published at the BMJ recently, it wasn't actually that recently, I can't think of it, uh, about a survey of British doctors asking whether, asking two questions. Do they believe that doctors in general are affected by, in their prescription habits, by free gifts from, uh, and so lavish lunches and so forth? Something like 92% of doctors say yes. Doctors are affected by that, and they're right. There's a massive amount of evidence that uh, you can you can track people's prescription habits, and going having gone to a free lunch uh, causes the prescriptions for the drug drugs uh, uh, which are manufactured by the company that threw on the, the the lunch causes their prescriptions to rise. By the way, independent of whether they actually remember who paid for the lunch, so they're right. There's 92% of doctors who say that. Uh, these, these free gifts affect prescription habits are right. But in the same survey, only 15% of doctors said that their prescription habits could ever be affected. So most doctors believe that they're an exception to the general rule. And that's, you know, I'm not picking on doctors, there's a huge amount of evidence, so we all think this. So pick on academics instead. Something like 98% of academics say they are better academics than average. 85% um, of drivers say they're better than average. Um, people find it very difficult to accept that their first-person perspective of uh, looking out on the world as rational information processes uh, could ever be wrong. And I think that's why we're so resistant to things like the eyewitness testimony that everything. If I, if I remember it clearly, it must be the case. We can't accept that memory is a reconstructive process. Uh, so um, whether we can come to accept something that's so counterintuitive, I really don't know. But I'd like us to, at least in certain contexts uh, where we can have rules of evidence, uh, I'd like uh, taken much more seriously than it is. Um, yeah, right in the front here, first row. Uh, thanks. Can I follow up on the um, pedophilia question? Because the example that comes through in, in, in um, that particular case is very clear cut. Um, there was this evidence of the tumour, and, um, and it was clearly a change to the brain over which the person had no control that caused the um, behaviour. But pedophilia. Um, the vast majority of people have no inclination to paedophilia. Um, it's not that they're exercising greater control or greater responsibility than the few who do. Um, they just, it just doesn't register as, as something that is of interest to them. Um, therefore, almost by definition, those tiny minority, um, they must have different brains in some ways. Um, and it seems to me that the determinative characteristic slips back here pretty, pretty quickly. So I wonder if it is control that's doing the work here, uh, rather than character. So if you con contrast the MAOA M -A -O -A gene case with the, uh, the tumor case, 
the the MAOA gene uh, will affect development. It's it's you're born with it, and then uh, it's it doesn't predict anything by itself. But given a certain um, history, a history of abuse, you're far more likely to be violent yourself uh, than someone who either has the gene and no history of abuse, uh, or someone who has a history of abuse uh, and doesn't have that gene. But it's developmental, so you think of that we respond to them as this is who they are. You, there's a story to be told about why they're a thug, um, but they are a thug. Whereas in the pedophilia case, this is a person with a developed character, a stable personality, who changed. And I, I'm, I'm not trying at the moment to come up with a, a rational explanation of why we should respond differently. I'm trying to explain why we do respond differently. And I wonder if that's not the basis of it. I mean, I think there's um, something of a difference here, because um, everyone when he's all men of thugs, to greater or lesser extent. Um, but um, we're not all paedophilia, it's either more or less yes or no. Um, so that seems to me to suggest something quite radically different in the composition of the brain somewhere. I'm sure there has to be a brain difference. That's because, uh, you know, uh, the mental states depend on brain states. Uh, so two questions. One is, is the state to be identified with the person? And that's what I was, the question I was asking. The other is, uh, can the person be reasonably expected to have uh, set aside that, that, that state? So we all experience desires uh, to do things that are, that are immoral. Uh, we all uh, you know, feel the flash of anger when we're cut off from driving, but not all of us actually <coughs> engage in, in, in road rage. So you'd want to know not just about whether they have the desire, but also about its strength. Can I just comment? I mean, I think they, we all like to think in categories um, because you either do or you don't do something. But all the evidence suggests that most abnormal behavior is dimensional. Uh, so that a point comes when you go over a threshold, but uh, it's not something that some people have and others don't have at all. It's that some people have more of it than others. Sorry, there's so many questions here. Let's uh, just go to that side for a moment because we've been sort of being on the right side. So in the second row here, um, yeah, there, exactly. Uh, we know from an organization called Transition to Adulthood that in Germany, the criminal justice system when sentencing offenders aged 16 to 24, instead of rigidly adhering to age groups 15 to 18, 18 to 21, 21 plus, tries to explore the notion of maturity, obviously quite a tall order. And I'm just wondering whether the advances of neuroscience would actually promote this approach or if neuroscience is stronger on group than individual, actually militate against it? Well, in principle, I think that is a good thing, uh, because it is recognizing that brain development continues up certainly to the mid-20s, maybe beyond that, I don't know. 
Um, but neuroscience, at least so far, and probably for quite some time to come, uh, is not good at translating that into what can be applied to an individual who's appearing in court for whatever reason. I was just wondering, given that an increasing number of behaviours are being classified as a mental illness, so with the revisions to the DSM manual you've got you know, new uh, syndromes and new mental illnesses, does this provide an increasing number of people a way of excusing their behaviour in the criminal justice system? And if it does, is this a good thing or is it justified or is it not? It's a very interesting question, isn't it? I, um, I mean, yeah, I think I, th I think you're right that this is the, the 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 trend, and I think that if you can put yourself into one of these these categories, and uh, this, this 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 kind of legitimates in a way that it wouldn't previously have done. Um, and is it a good or a bad thing? I'm, I'm going to just have, I just have to pause on the pend on that one. I think Mike wants to say something about this. <laughs> well, I mean, I think that. The classification enterprise is, is not a wonderful one. Uh, I've been much involved with it f since the early 60s, so I'm familiar with its strengths, but I'm certainly m even more familiar with its problems. The way people are thinking about the dangers uh, is actually less on the legal side than on the drug side. Uh, and they're aware that something that is labelled uh, will instantly give rise to an industry promoting this drug or that drug for that disorder. And they are concerned about the dangers of this being applied in a damaging way. But the trouble is that um, it is clear that these diagnoses are dimensional. Uh, and so you can't say it's wrong, as it were, to do this. What you can do is ask the question, is it being done in a way which diminishes the likelihood of it being misused? And opinions still differ on that. Yeah, hi. Um, I'm actually a criminal lawyer, so um, I can um, give just one or two insights on, on points that people have raised. The chap down here who said um, the sentencing panel, does it go on Kantian criteria or utilitarian criteria? It's essentially Kantian criteria. What the sentencing panel does is it will say this is a particular sentence that should fit a particular crime, and the sentencing judge then has the capacity to go up or down when taking the individual's circumstances into account. So a, a judge may well say, well, this should go below the usual um, sentence for this offence because this individual needs this kind of help to stop him committing the offence again. So essentially it's retributive when it comes to the guidelines, but there can come a kind of rehabilitative emphasis when it comes to actually sentencing particular individuals. Um, people have raised a lot of issues as well about identification and the dangers of it, and the criminal justice system is very well aware of that. There's something called the Turnbull Guidelines, where judges actually have to direct juries of the dangers of identification evidence, 
and that even the most honest witness can be mistaken. That's a very strong emphasis because there has been a whole string of cases in the criminal justice system where people have been wrongly identified, as people have said, um, have, um, have, um, have been wrongly convicted. Uh, the lady down here also raised the point about the misuse of, of um, mental health diagnosis. I think there has to be a clear distinction here between people being found not guilty because of mental disorders, and the tumour one was a good example of that, and mitigation, mental, uh, mental illness which might provide mitigation. For example, if someone's addicted to drugs, for example, and goes out and commits a crime, he will still be guilty of the crime, but that provide, might provide some degree of mitigation and, and influence what sentence it is. And so, for example, if someone is sex addiction, for example, if somebody's diagnosed with that, that's not going to be a defence to rape. But again, it might direct sentencing and how someone in that position should be approached. So I, I, I don't perhaps fear the misuse as perhaps some people um, are doing here. So that was my expert, expert I don't know, and my informed perspective, perhaps. Okay, thank you. Um, yeah, thank you. Uh, thank you. Um, <clears throat> my question uh, is around the issue of moral responsibility and um, its identification and possibly development. Um, uh, um, I, I, it's very interesting to hear that in Germany there's so much written about this issue in terms of, uh, of what you mentioned, Professor Levy, um, uh, because anybody who's followed the uh, discussion that was provoked by Bernard Schlink's novel, The Reader, uh, is aware that there's a, a, a generation still alive in Germany today who remember their grandfathers with great love and then discovered they were members of the SS. Uh, but to get more specific, um, I'm thinking of the Milgram experiments. And I'm wondering if in today's context of neuroscience, uh, I'm wondering if it would be possible to redesign the Milgram experiments with some neuroscientific, uh, neuroscience technology around to identify kind of who was going to be obedient to orders and who was going to resist those orders and possibly also in the future um, how it might be how it might be that a, a, a resistance to orders which you didn't really kind of your, your, your other moral part of you didn't want to obey uh, how that could be developed if neuroscience could possibly in the future help that sort of process? So there's sort of two parts of that question, but specifically based on the Milgram experiments. Uh, so maybe I'll start by just telling people who don't know what the Milgram experiments were. These are very famous experiments on obedience to authority. Uh, the, the setup was the subject was told that there was going to be somebody else who was giving, given uh, a test, and if they got the answer wrong, the subject was to shock them. Uh, and each time they got the answer wrong, they were to increase the shock. And uh, it started at 5 volts, 10 volts, and going up. And the last one, the second last one, was labelled danger, <laughs> severe shock. The last one was simply labelled XXX. <laughs> and most people continued to shock all the way through to the end. Most people uh, in most cultures will, will go right the way through the, uh, to the end. Interestingly, a lot of them, we've got film of some of the experiments, a lot of them were very distressed. People crying, uh, in tears, shaking, 
but continuing to do it. And no one was forcing them. There was simply a, an experimenter standing next to them who, whenever they said, I don't want to do this, who said, the experiment requires that you continue. Um, most people uh, would do it. Now, um, there's a huge range of data about the power of situational factors, like the, the white coats. Uh, and in fact, so here's my, my pet peeve, we know a lot more about social psychology and cognitive psychology than we do about neuroscience. So it, it annoys me that neuroscience, uh, which is fascinating and developing very fast, nevertheless I think it, it, it has got more of the attention than it deserves uh, relative to these other sciences. Um, Right now, I'd be very surprised if neuroscience could enable us to predict which of those subjects would, would uh, turn the dial and which wouldn't. I'd be very, very surprised. But we have good functional tests. And uh, the lady here who mentioned the, the uh, maturity tests that uh, are actually being applied, I'd much rather see functional tests like that tests based on good social and cognitive psychology being applied rather than neuroscience. The best science is convergent evidence, when you get evidence from all the sciences of the mind, which can, might include evolutionary approaches, might in, uh, include formal modelling, uh, certainly will include neuroscience, but the, the, uh, including cognitive and sci social psychology is absolutely necessary to understanding the mind. I guess the other question is too, even if neuroscience did or maybe you want to add to that, but even if neuroscience could answer that question, what should follow from that? Yes, I mean, I think that functional imaging uh, does have a role in looking at individual differences uh, and could be potentially very informative on that. So, yes, it would be useful, but I think you've instantly got to say it's very unlikely that anything at all like the Milgram experiments would pass ethical scrutiny today. <laughs> so uh, you, you'd have to devise something that is acceptable uh, and you, you would have to have functional imaging that is related to this uh, in a way that could be informative about individual differences. But potentially, I, mean, I do agree with Neil, that one wants to see come together different areas of science to do that. But that could be helpful. Okay, with that, unfortunately, we're out of our time. So please join me in thanking the panel for their